0: never give up on those dreams never give up on those ideas that you have write them down somewhere you never know when that seed that's been planted is ready to sprout
1: this is Chan with the plan the podcast a podcast providing career advice and easy actual steps for frustrated professionals helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career I'm your host Max Chan now let's dive into the episode Hey, Kelly, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Max. Nice to be here.
1: Great to have you on. My podcast is about helping professionals overcome challenges, whether it's career or personal. And I wanted you to come on my podcast because you faced something that a lot of people faced a couple of years ago, which is having to change your career because of COVID. I'm in the career coaching space, and I know a lot of professionals that got laid off due to COVID and had to make a career move out of force. So you, just talking offline uh, prior, you were in the event production industry for 25 plus years and then COVID. What happened, and obviously there's no events during that time because of all the uh, restrictions. And at that point, you had to make a choice in terms of pivoting your career. I'm not going to do a thunder and like go through more in detail before you start off your story. There, why don't you tell us more about your background in terms of the event production experience that you've gained over the years?
0: Sure, uh, well, as you said I've had more than twenty five years in the event industry, and that involved mostly working with nonprofit organizations planning fundraising events, everything from golf tournaments to black tie galas uh, at more than a thousand dollars a ticket kind of thing so the, the whole range uh, and in the course of that career. Uh, I helped charities raise over $15 million net worldwide. And in 2019 and 2020, I was just gaining more international recognition. I was starting to get media and PR and all kinds of attention for all my work. And of course, as we all know, in early 2020, I just had done my 13th year of one big event. And two weeks later, the world shut down. And in the space of seven days, I lost 10 upcoming event contracts and my business that I'd spent 25 years building had stopped and I had no idea how long it was going to stop for.
1: Your first passion was uh, event production. You said it's focusing on nonprofit. Uh, So why don't you tell us more about how you got into event production? Like what made you passionate about it where you, you build a business doing it for 25 years?
0: Well, that's an interesting story in itself. I went to university, did my four-year degree in psychology, and I actually have also diplomas uh, as a travel agent, a certification, and a diploma in sound engineering and recording. I was trying out a lot of different things with all my different interests. And in the meantime, while I was doing all that schooling, I was working in retail. And then I did a bit of nannying and I found myself without a job and starting to feel a little bit desperate uh, for some money to pay rent and things like that. I took another job in retail and it was something I'd known. I'd worked in retail for 10 years in various positions. And I went and did the first shift and it was four hours and I spent all four hours in a back room unpacking boxes of winter clothing and hanging them up. and I hated it. I hated it so much that I actually started to cry. And I was like, what am I doing? And at the end of that four hours, I went to my manager and I said, my shift is done and I'm sorry, but I won't be back. It was such a weight on me in terms of it wasn't what I wanted to do at all. And I was trying to figure out, well, what is it that I do want to do? I was struggling finding a job in the live music, sound engineering space that I really wanted to be in. And I I thought, well, what would I love to do so much that I would do it for free? And I actually realized that I was doing that because I had been volunteering for camps and my church and a, a theater that I had friends really involved with. And I was basically planning events for them to raise money for friends going on missions trips or for the camp, you know, that kind of thing. And so I'm like, well, I could get a job planning an event like this, an auction or a dinner or whatever. And someone will pay me for it because I do. I love it enough that I would do it for free, but if I can get paid even better. And that's how I found my first job in events. And I was working on a black tie gala at that time. There was a team of three of us and... As they say, the rest was history. It started 25 years in an industry that I loved. And I got to put my love for live theater, live music, all of that into all the events. Because any live production is basically an event. And every event is like a live theater production. You've got costumes, you've got sound, you've got music and scripts. It's all the pieces.
1: Now let's fast forward all the way to, I think, like March, April 2020. When did you first hear about COVID and what were your thoughts about it?
0: Uh, so I was working on a big event uh, for my 13th year. It's, uh, I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. And the event I was working on is like 45, 48 years old now. It's called the Vancouver International Wine Festival. And it brings wineries and winery makers and owners from around the world, usually about 180 to 200 winery people, and for 66 events over the course of 10 days. And my focus was their big gala for 600 people, 10 wines, five courses, a huge wine, collectible wine auction. And uh, so leading into that, it kind of kicked off the week of events. But leading into that, we'd heard about COVID and we knew that it was happening. It was happening in Europe. And some of our winery owners and winemakers were delayed because of issues going on in their countries, Italy and France. And, And yet they still made it. And, but it was always in the background like, is this something we need to be worried about? Or is it kind of like a few years before when we heard about SARS or the uh, bird flu? Are all those things that we got nervous about worldwide, but that didn't really affect us? And interestingly enough, uh, we had our event, the whole wine festival happened. And the day we moved out of the big Vancouver Convention Center, a dental conference moved in. And the dental conference was where the first case of COVID in Vancouver was discovered and became a big spreading event. That's where it was traced back to. So we got really lucky with the wine festival, but it was about, I think it was 10 days after that, that spring break hit and people were being told to come back from trips and everything and be back in your, and things started to shut down.
1: Yeah, like going back to what you said about the SARS, I was I think in middle school when SARS happened and people started wearing masks, but nothing really shut down. So we thought like, okay, COVID might be just another SARS situation where people will freak out for a couple months, people might start wearing a mask, people might be more paranoid, but that would be it. But no one expected a complete shutdown, uh, at least for how long it was. I think I, I was at least a year and then some on and off lockdowns. So you're from Vancouver, I'm from Toronto, and... There's a long lockdown, then they go into the phases, they gradually open things up, and then they went back to like different levels and stuff. So it, it was a it was a big mess. So for you, when did you start hearing about having to shut down events because of COVID?
0: Well, actually, hearing about what was going on in the world and going through the wine festival, I was working on an event for another organization. And their organization is Uh, supported mainly by a lot of older people. And so I was already a little bit nervous talking about bringing a bunch of older people within a month or so all together in one place, hearing what I was hearing and how it was riskier for them. So I was actually recommending to them before things shut down, that maybe this was an opportunity for them to uh, support their donors, support their supporters by saying, we honor your health and your safety. And so we're going to press pause on our event. And so there was that piece to start with. And literally two days after they agreed, and we decided to make a statement that we were going to press pause on this big event, is when our province started to shut down. It was like, I think the first day of spring break or the last day before spring break and the announcements went out. I know British Columbia was a little bit different than the rest of Canada, but the announcements went out telling people to come home, to not go on spring break trips, all of that. And then we thought it was only going to last a week or two. We thought that that spring break interruption, shut everything down, nobody travel, would help us come back. But people started to get scared. At least my clients who who raise money, there's a lot of deposits and things in the event industry that you have to pay in advance and you have to make commitments. And there came a point where people had to say, we have to pull the plug before we spend more money. And we can always reschedule it six months, a year down the road. If we pay this next deposit or whatever, we could be in even more trouble. And especially for the organizations that were theater companies or music companies, they're like, we don't know what's going to happen either. And so we can't keep going forward and spend more money that we don't have yet because we're hoping for the fundraiser to help us through our season, through our next season, whatever that is, uh, if we don't even know if we can put that season up. So because a lot of my contracts were in that arts and culture space, that started shutting down really quickly. And then the other organizations were probably after the spring break, after the two weeks, three weeks is when more of them started saying, yeah, I think, we're just going to take a step back. <laughs> and so, but it was pretty clear quickly when we could see no end and the numbers just kept rising and that the news was not positive that this was going to be longer term than we thought.
1: Yeah. Speaking of the um, positive stuff, right. I heard a lot of horror stories of weddings being like they have a deposit and they lost their deposit. And then these event venues had to close down and a lot of couples lost their deposit too. So it was a, even a horrible disaster for the wedding industry as well.
0: Yeah. Well, and the the only positive thing when it comes to charities is a lot of the venues that I worked with, they would donate the venue rental uh, as long as we spent a certain amount of money. And so we didn't have to put the deposit down for the venue rental so much as it was a deposit on what we'd spend on food and beverage or AV or whatever that looked like. And so those were smaller amounts, but it still could be crippling for a small organization for sure.
1: So you said initially you thought, okay, it's just going to be a couple of weeks of the spring break, just get everybody home. But obviously it went from weeks to months and even like a full year. So in your opinion, when did it start to dawn on you that maybe like the event industry is going to get decimated and I got to do something else? Because you can definitely hold off for a couple of weeks, maybe even a month. But when uh, one month turns to two months, turn to three months and you don't see an end in sight, like what was your thought process at that time?
0: Yeah, I think for the first six to eight weeks, I was more in recovery from my own burnout that I didn't really realize I was at. Cause I'd been working hard and on lots of events for several years at this point. And so I, I enjoyed the break at first. I was like, Oh, I get to breathe. I can read some books, but I quickly realized that actually I was doing nothing because I was so burnt out. And that, but when I started kind of coming back and getting through that burnout, probably six, eight weeks, I started to get bored. And I was like, what's the reality here? are events going to come back? And if so, what are they going to look like? And even the thought of doing virtual events at that point wasn't really happening because nobody wanted to put the money in that technology that they maybe didn't have yet on a bigger scale when they didn't know if they'd need it. And so there were things that we were thinking of and everything. And in the meantime, I was finishing off my wine festival contract. Thankfully, I could go into the office to wrap things up. So I was doing a few little things. But with how quiet it was and the phone wasn't ringing and everything, I was like, this is a bigger deal than we think. And I was just like, I've always needed growth. I've needed to be challenged. I've needed to be learning. And so I kind of dove into a lot of stuff I'd already been doing for Several years. I actually produced a bit, an event of my own in 2017 called The Power of Story. It was all around my passion for our stories to inspire other people. And I'd worked with all of my clients to make sure that their events conveyed their story and why people wanted to support them. So that's been in my background the whole time. I was really sure that everybody has a story. It doesn't have to be a big organization. It doesn't have to be an Olympic athlete. It doesn't have to be someone who's won an Academy Award or a Grammy or whatever level of success we deem as worthy to listen to. (laughs) But we all have a story that can inspire someone else. And so I kind of started, not kind of, I started diving more into that. And what does that look like? And I took some extra business courses and how do I put my message out there? And it took Five or six months before I, I gathered a group of 12 women together who were trusting me, <laughs> I'm so thankful, to take them through a little program where I was helping them find their story and then make sure that it was healed. Because if our stories aren't healed, especially if they're the big traumatic stories, then they're not inspiring. But then helping them to share their story in written form. And that became my first book called The Gift in Your Story. Uh, it features the stories of these women. Each one has a chapter and I w- found editors. I actually found a book coach. I found all kinds of people to help because <laughs> I'd never done the publishing thing before. I didn't even know what to do. And these women not only shared their stories, but they had a huge level of healing in the midst of it. And to me, that gave me purpose as I was learning and it a great sense of giving back to the people who trusted me, but also to anybody who could pick up the book or hear that story because they could be inspired to know in their darkest time that there is a light at the end of the tunnel that they could get through that tough time.
1: You mentioned, so you were doing events for 25 years and that you were really passionate about it. You were really into it, but you still experienced burnout. A lot of people may assume that uh, if you love something, it doesn't feel like work. So how did that burnout uh, come about?
0: Well, first, I I rarely took a vacation and I'm still a little bit like that. I don't take full breaks. And because I had my own company and I was taking contracts with different clients, there was often overlap. So I was often working more than a nine to five, 40 hour week. In fact, it was never nine to five. And then there's a lot that goes into the event industry and especially working with charities because I'm also working not only with the organizations and my vendors, suppliers and everybody But I'm generally working with volunteers who are very passionate and have differing opinions (laughs) about all kinds of things. And managing, this is where my psychology degree came in handy, managing different personalities and the emotions and everything that goes into that amongst all the different players probably took more out of me than the actual event work but lots of days of long hours when you're working an event and especially at a big event like the wine festival that was eight, 10 days long. It's lots of days of long hours. It's not a one-time thing and you're on your feet. So you physically get run down, you forget to eat, you forget to drink water. So you get dehydrated and hangry and all the things. <laughs> and then when it's over, yeah, that event's over except for the wrap up, but I would immediately be in the ramp up to another event because I'd have overlapping clients. So that was my problem in a lot of ways in that I didn't know how to take that break and take care of myself. I've learned definitely (laughs) that that's an important thing to do. Uh, But that was a, a big part of it. And I feel like burnout sneaks up on us. That sure, we're getting tired and we might be getting a little bit more irritable with coworkers or anybody that we're working with. But until you kind of get slammed by it, at least in my experience, until I get slammed by it and I can't even make a simple decision like a friend asking me, Do you want to come for dinner or can I bring you something for dinner? Knowing that I wasn't well, when I couldn't make that decision, I was like, There's something wrong. <laughs> So burnout can happen emotionally, physically, intellectually, but when it's all of them, it's really hard to even know where to start.
1: So the book that you're talking about, uh, The Gift in Your Story, uh, you said that each chapter is devoted to like each uh, woman you interviewed, right? And what challenges that they have uh, in their life?
0: Yes, they actually wrote their own chapter. So I kind of took them through the process and worked with a developmental editor. So it's their words, their writing. I just helped with the editing and proofreading and the process to put it together.
1: Uh and how long did that take you?
0: From start to finished. So we did a weekend workshop to start and then they wrote their chapter from start to publishing date, launch date where we got 11 number 1 rankings on our release date. Uh it was about exactly 6 months.
1: So what were some obstacles and challenges that you had to go through in those six months to make sure that you hit the deadline of finishing the book?
0: First of all, I needed to find someone who knew what they were doing to kind of walk us through it. I had 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 this idea. I was working with these women and they were ready. But where do you even start? Now I know where to find all that information because I've done it and I did it for my own solo book. But I found a book coach and that person helped a lot in terms of helping me know what step was next, what we needed to do, helping connect me with different editors. Because there were three different kinds of editors that we used for the process, developmental editor, grammatical editor. editor, and then a proofreader. And then things like cover design and the things I never would have thought about. uh, Keywords, it's like for a website SEO, but on Amazon, it's the same thing. Keywords, what categories, where do you want to be found? How are people going to find you? All those kinds of things when you're doing the cover and deciding the categories, all of those things. Who knew? But on the positive side, my event planning background is why we got 11 number ones on launch day because I planned a fantastic virtual launch event that made a huge difference.
1: I want to dive deeper into that. What are some of the similarities or the transferable skills in the workplace uh, lingo that you took from launching events to launching a book?
0: Oh, wow. Well, with a collaborative book, it was different. That's I'm going to say that's different than a solo book. With a collaborative book, a lot of the same skills that I used, say, in working with volunteer committees and with my clients and suppliers, I used with these women, uh, even though I was taking them through a program that I developed. And I've developed all kinds of things over the years in events, so and training programs for volunteers, for communication, all those kinds of things. But when it came to the book launch, it's the power of the group, but it was also knowing how to time things, how to schedule them so that everybody had their 10 or 15 minutes of the group of authors, all the women, and to help maximize their reach. Because my reach is only so far, but when I multiply that by 12 more, that's that's how we ended up having such a profitable and positive, successful launch. And now each one of them can call themselves an international best-selling author because that reach makes such a huge difference. Uh, it, it's the same thing in fundraising is you want to have sponsors and donors who have their reach and they bring new people. And then those new people get excited and they spread the word and you know, the, uh, there was an old commercial. I think it was Breck shampoo or Revlon or something like that. You might be too young <laughs> to remember this, but it was this woman who washed her hair and how much she loved the shampoo. And she goes, and I tell two people, and they tell two people, and so on and so on and so on. It's the power of things going viral right? That was the key. But really focusing attention and getting everybody to invite their friends to support them and their family to support them and then doing something live with ways to keep their attention, interviewing each of the authors, prize giveaways, all kinds of stuff like that.
1: These women that you had in your book, labor effort, as you stated, what were some of the common themes uh, in each of their stories that you found fascinating?
0: Oh gosh, they were all, they all had such different stories, but I I mean, I would say that that the main common theme was that they'd all struggled with something that changed their life significantly, often tore their life apart, whether it was a death in the family or uh, having to let go of a long held dream. And it could be like the dream of having children or, or feeling like you had the fairy tale marriage and all of a sudden it breaks apart. And how do you Find yourself again in the midst of that, especially if they had identified themselves as that wife or potential parent or always hoped to be those things. And in the job world as well, with career, what happens when you have to change and that identity is stripped away? You do have to find who you truly are at your core and what you love and what makes you you outside of whatever job title or life title you have.
1: So moving to the the next part of your your book writing career, first solo book, how did that come about? How did you go from doing a collaborative book with uh, many female professionals and doing a solo book?
0: Well, as much as I like to say when I'm working with people that everybody has a story that matters. And (laughs) I doubted the power of my own story for a very long time. I knew that I had a story. And I guess I just doubted that people would care but I knew how much I cared about other people's stories. So it was easier for me to convince all these women over here that their story mattered than really focusing on my own. And so my solo book really takes my story, which started when I was three and I was orphaned in a house fire, took the lives of my parents and I was rescued from that fire. Uh, And so that's where my trauma started. And 16 years ago is where my idea for my book started and where this passion for storytelling and helping people find and share their stories started. When my sister-in-law had a massive stroke and she was left locked in. And I don't know if you or your listeners know what locked in syndrome is, but basically it's when someone is totally paralyzed, uh, except for their eyes usually, but they are fully cognitive. So they know exactly what's going on around them. They are fully aware. And my sister-in-law was left in this state and can only move her eyes up for yes and down for no. So we could ask yes and no questions and sometimes her responses are slower, but there is some communication. And when she had her stroke and her kids were five and nine and I jumped in to help because that's what I did and I was godmother to one of them and all these things, that was when I had my first round of burnout. (laughs) where I'd been burning the candle at both ends and the middle. And I ended up at a spa for six weeks, which is where I realized through conversations with some people that my story inspired people. And so that's where my own journey really began in terms of recognizing that if my story could help just one person, then I had to get it out there. I just didn't know what it looked like. And then recognizing that when I had these conversations with other people and I was inspired by their stories, that they needed to share those too. And so this book is the culmination of 16 years of thinking about what does it look like? Because I didn't think I was a writer. I didn't think I was a speaker. There were a lot of things that I didn't think I was that I just hadn't tried, to be honest. And I finally got the book finished and released in November of last year. So the book's just over a year old now. And it takes my story and weaves it in through all of the things I've learned around the power of all of our stories and the importance of finding our stories of making sure they're healed and sharing them to inspire others, but also because it is our legacy that we leave for our family and for our communities and really for our world. Because the more we know each other's stories, the less division we have, the more we realize we are all the same.
1: Yeah, what I find interesting is that a lot of people don't like document their their journey throughout their life, right? Like you read obituaries and like they don't really say a lot. They say like they're the father or mother of so-and-so and grandfather of this. And then just a very brief verbiage, but you don't really know their full story. Like if you go to the cemetery and you look these people up, like there's not a lot that you can like research about them. So it is unfortunate in regards to like, people not being able to like share their story before they leave the world.
0: Yes. And, and really that's something I'm coming across people telling me more and more right now is particularly my contemporaries are feeling like they've maybe missed the opportunity to capture the stories of their parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents who are grandparents, mostly gone in my family. All of our parents are gone as well, including my adoptive parents. And, and so when we've lost that opportunity, it's gone. And there's so many stories that can inform who we are and how we live our lives that we don't even know until, quite honestly, until we're older and we realize, oh, that's why I'm like that. When we're in our 20s, we just don't care. But there's so much that can inform who we are, how we were brought up and how we find our place in this world and even like why we hold the beliefs we hold. And that's why how we can tear them apart and build new ones in terms of recognizing how much our world has changed and making it a better place.
1: Yeah, you make a good point about the people in their twenties, right? Because they think they're invincible, they think they'll have a long life, and then life just speeds by you, right? So, like for me, like I'm in my mid thirties, and like I think life has gone by super quick. It seems like yesterday I was just graduating college and graduating university and like starting my first job, but like time has flown by.
0: Yeah, I uh, I remember my mom saying at one point, my adoptive mother saying, "Oh, the older you get, the faster every year goes." And it kind of feels true because, you know, when you're in grade school and you're a kid, you think it takes forever to get your driver's license. It takes you forever to graduate high school, to get through college, university, all of that. And now I feel like, where is the time going? I mean, I can't believe we're already at the end of 2023.
1: (laughs) Yeah, time flies. I'm doing this podcast with you like a few weeks before 2024. So time is definitely passing by. So what is some advice that you can tell people who are in my audience are a bit younger or they think that they have all this time because they're in their mid-20s?
0: Uh, so the first thing is do what you love. If you can't get paid for it yet, don't forget about it. Because like I said, it took me 16 years to be on a path where I'm really focusing on story and everything. But I found ways to incorporate it in other stuff. But even just falling into events, because that's how what I feel happened for me. It was because I looked for what I loved and what I was passionate about and what I was already doing for free. So do that because you won't regret it because you find your people and you find who you are. And second, never give up on those dreams. Never give up on those ideas that you have, write them down somewhere. Maybe you'll get back to them, but maybe, and and quite honestly, some of them you won't, but you never know when that seed that's been planted is ready to sprout.
1: Absolutely. You were saying before, when you're doing events, you're also doing other stuff. And then that other stuff led to you creating your first book with collaborative effort with a lot of female uh, leaders. And then you ended up creating your own solo book to tell your story.
0: Yeah. And now I'm just, I'm helping people write their own books. I am running groups, helping people find their stories, whether it's for business, because we all know in marketing that story is what sells, (laughs) but often people don't know their business stories or how to tell them. So I'm helping people with that. And then I'm helping individuals capture family stories and the stories of who they are. And ultimately helping them when they're ready, if, they, if they're if they ready to share them on the bigger stage to inspire other people. That's where everything comes together. And I love seeing how it affects a bigger audience.
1: So for someone who wants to start writing a book, I think most of them will lean more towards writing a book, like a solo book, as you did, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Uh, So what is your advice in terms of getting started, what skills you need, and what deadline should you set yourself? Because your collaborative book was, I think, six months, right? So six months at the right time, should it give them more grace? Like, should it be a year of your first book? Like, what's your... Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah.
0: A solo book will take a very long time, because I finished the first draft of my solo book in January of 2022, and it took almost a year to get it through three rounds of editing to do it properly. And in today's world of self-publishing and the ease of publishing things, there is a lot of garbage out there that isn't well written, that doesn't have the right grammar, that isn't good sentence structure. I've read people's books that I wanted to support where I couldn't understand what they were saying because it was so poorly written. So you don't want to do that. The hope for a book is to position yourself as an expert in your field. You Want to come across as an expert in your field. <laughs> you want people to understand what you're saying. So please, please, please do it properly. Find good editors, find good proofreaders, but give yourself probably two to three years because just writing from like you would write in a journal isn't going to be a book. It takes a lot of work to sew things together and everything. Uh, and then the editing for my book, like I said, it took 11 months, almost a full year from the time I finished the first draft. Uh, A great way to start is actually if people want to participate in a collaborative book, because writing a chapter, 3,000 words, people can do that in a weekend and then work with an editor to straighten it out, to make sure that it flows and makes sense and has the desired outcome. And it's a good way to test, do I even like doing this? And depending on who you are, I know people who have written books that have written them by speaking Their thoughts into their phones and then sending it off to a dictation service to transcribe it for them and then sending that to an editor who does all the work. So you need to realize that to do it properly, it's not going to be inexpensive either because you want to get a good editor. You want to get people who you can work with to make your thoughts be clear. I would say for a solo book timeline, give yourself two to three years to have grace, unless you already have a whole bunch of content ready. But you could be a part of a collaborative book and have it out in six months. You could be a bestseller next
1: year. Yeah, one of the interesting things you brought up is you'll actually have to write the book yourself. There's this person, uh, Gary Vee, I'm, I'm not sure if you know him. He says that he's not a good writer, but what he does is he he speaks the book and then he hires someone to dictate the book in words and then does the editing and all that stuff. So I, I never knew that until he brought it up. For anyone listening, just because you're not a good writer doesn't mean you can't write a book. As long as you have a good story, you can always hire additional help to help you put the words from your mouth onto paper.
0: Definitely. It's why politicians have speech writers. It's why businesses and corporations and everybody have PR teams, media teams, because some people really know how to write. So I didn't know Gary Vee did that as well. But Dean Graciosi, if you're familiar with him, that's how he's written his books as well. And they have both been really popular bestsellers, which is how I heard about it, is that he was telling us in a course that I
1: took. So I know like there's a lot of editing involved, but like, how do you know when it's ready or when you have to edit it again? Like, what are you looking for when you go through multiple drafts of editing?
0: You want the edits to become less and less. When I had my first round of editing, I think there were 11,000 edits in my manuscript. <laughs> and by the last round, well, it got down to less than 100. And then it went to a proofreader because most of those were proofreading. They weren't restructuring of sentences or explaining thoughts. The first round, you're going to get a lot of that. With a good editor, you're going to get someone saying, okay, we need to move this around. Uh, What do you mean by this? Or this is really harsh. Is there a way that you can say it that isn't as judgmental or something? My editor was fantastic for that. Like, oh, like, I think you want to be careful. You don't want to put your reader on the defensive. Like a lot of it comes down to the three questions I ask anybody with their story when they're putting their story together to share how do you want people to feel when they've heard or read your story? And the same thing with a book. How do you want people to feel? What action do you want them to take when they're done? Do you want them to sign up for a course? Do you want them to share their own story? What is it that you want them to take? And what is the big takeaway? What do you want them to remember and share with the next person they're talking to and say, Hey, I just read this book. I learned this. And so if you can focus on those three things to make sure that that's the thread that ties it all together, then that's gonna help uh, hugely.
1: So the next question I wanna ask you is, uh, did you felt there was more pressure to perform for the, your solo book? Cause it's all on you compared to a collaborative book. Uh, and what's your thoughts on that?
0: Uh, the marketing's definitely more difficult because my reach is smaller. I did build a launch team and that helped. And I still had bestseller status, which is fantastic but it's a constant process. And this is where I am learning every single day is the continual marketing of myself. It's like coming on podcasts, having to step out and be in the uncomfortable space of the spotlights on me. As as an event producer, I was always in the shadows. I was dressed in black in the shadows and the spotlight was on my client and the volunteers. It wasn't on me. So this has been a huge learning process for me is to step into the spotlight and say, I know what I'm doing. And I am an expert in this area and I can help you. And that goes the same for marketing my book.
1: So obviously, it's been a few years since COVID started. Did you ever have an itch to get back into event production? Or let's say 12 months down the road, things were picking back up. You got calls from like previous clients say, hey, uh, we're doing events again. Are you interested? Like, was there any of that talk? And are you still doing at least some events? Or you can really focus on like storytelling, uh, coaching other people how to write their own books. So where are you at with that?
0: Great question, because I've been trying to figure it out. My toe is still in the event world. My foot, not just a toe, a whole leg, let's say. I actually, I'm doing some consulting work with a couple of organizations And I'm doing some volunteer work with another organization that I'm passionate about the work they do that I've met in the last year. And some of that involves advising them on events that they weren't doing before. And my goal is that a year and a half, two years down the road, I'm going to bring back my Power of Story conference. And I'll probably hire an an event manager for the day because last time I hosted it and was trying to manage it, and that's too much. So don't recommend that hire a professional to run the behind the scenes, I think I'll always keep my at least a toe, but probably a foot in the event world because I'm still passionate about it. And I love experiencing well done events and having a hand in making them successful.
1: So it's one of those things when COVID happened, like it gave you a lot of time to self reflect in terms of what you want to do. And then at that point, you realize that I do like events, but don't want to oversee the whole operation as pre COVID.
0: Well, and let's be honest, I'm not getting any younger and events are hard on you physically in particular, those long days, a lot of lifting, moving things around. And I just don't want to do that anymore. All the heavy lifting. (laughs) And so uh, it's, it's time for me to shift, but I still love the excitement, the electricity of a live event.
1: Again, like you can't build a business just by staying at home on your computer, right? Like you have to go out, do events, like network. That's how you really grow your business.
0: Yeah. And as great as the virtual world was during COVID to still make connections, It's not a replacement for the relationships you can build and the connections you can make. Even as an attendee, when you go to a conference or a live event and you're sitting beside someone and in the downtimes, you're having a conversation and connecting or you're grabbing coffee with someone else or a meal with someone else. I have friends that from events that not that I worked, but that I attended over the years that I met just that way. And you just don't do that the same way on a zoom meeting or a virtual event, because you don't have those opportunities to have those casual interactions.
1: As you as you mentioned, Dean Graziosi, like he does a lot of events too, right? Like he does like his online webinars and stuff and his online courses, but he does ho- hold big events. And that's where like a lot of the networking and like connection building happens.
0: Exactly. And yeah, there's no, there's nothing like it. And the, the excitement that's in the room. Tony Robbins, same thing, took all of his big seminars online. I did some of them during covid. And yeah, he he hypes up everybody and this playing music and all the things. But I can't imagine because I haven't been to one in person. It must be a 100 times that exciting and all encompassing when you're there in person in the room.
1: What's next for you in terms of like your book journey? Are you planning to make another book or you just focusing on the two that you have right now, promoting them, get more exposure? Like what's your plan?
0: There's a multi prong plan. (laughs) One is I have a goal to have a series of collaborative books as I work with people to help them release their stories, to give them a platform to share them. And so I'm hoping that in 2024, I'll be releasing the second collaborative book. So that's part of the plan. I also just got an idea for another book of my own. And so I'm starting to just kind of sketch that out and work on that based on conversations I've had and stuff I've learned over the last couple of years and things I've been through. And then, as I said, I'd like to bring back my Power of Story conference. It'll probably be renamed something else where I bring experts in all kinds of different fields to help people refine their stories, but also do things like help people write their bios. The number of people who don't know how to write bios blows my mind. (laughs) Or, you know, all those kinds of things, just helping people with all the different pieces And then my goal is also to become a, I'm already a speaker, but to find some bigger stages to speak, to connect with and help even more people find and release their own stories.
1: And speaking of that, how can people reach out to you to learn more about what you do and how you can help them in terms of releasing their own story to the world?
0: Well, thank you for asking. I'm on Facebook, on Instagram and LinkedIn under my name, Kelly Snyder. And, and I have a podcast also called Epic Exchanges. And you can find that at Epic Exchanges on Facebook and Instagram, and wherever people listen to their podcasts. And on that podcast, it's almost six years old, the first several years were all about the importance of our stories, and all the different things, a lot of solo shows, And this year, when I came back in September after taking some time off, it's all interviews and I bring people on to share their personal stories. And once a month, I have someone sharing a children's book they've written that teaches an important aspect to kids and adults. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. But then I also have my website and it is kellysnyderauthor.com. And that's where you can find out about my books and my programs and send me an email.
1: Great, Uh, really enjoyed the conversation, Kelly, and best of luck with your book journey.
0: Thanks, thanks for having me, Max. Love chatting with you.
1: Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening and until next time.